Another serious felony charge filed against former President Donald Trump. Even more are likely looming, this time tied to his efforts to overturn the 2020 presidential election. What's it all mean, especially as Trump runs again? For Saturday, July 29th, it's All Things Considered from NPR News. I'm Scott Detrow. A classified Pentagon report obtained by NPR raises questions about the official story of a 2019 raid against a terrorist leader. I didn't know what was going on. I was just trying to escape death. And we'll visit the world of free diving, where competitors push their limits and risk death to go as deep as they can on a single breath. You know, it's only when you put yourself in a position that you discover what you're capable of. And this is something that free divers discovered they were capable of. Plus, we'll have tips on how to best spot upcoming meteor showers. If you time it right, you could even see a fireball streak across the sky. First news. Live from NPR News in Washington, I'm Janine Herbst. The European Union and France say they will end aid and security support to Niger and could impose sanctions following a coup this week, while the U.S. also threatened to withdraw assistance. Soldiers arrested the president on Wednesday and declared a new military leader, sparking widespread condemnation. NPR's Emmanuel Akinwotu has more. The European Union said Mohamed Bazoum remains the only legitimate president of Niger. Bazoum has been detained by soldiers from his own presidential guard who mounted a coup on Wednesday and installed a new president. The US government also said its support was conditional on democratic governance. The African Union and regional West African bloc, ECOWAS, have also condemned the coup and demanded Bazoum's release, while Niger has said external actors should not get involved. The coup is the latest military takeover in recent years, affecting a belt of African countries from the coast of East to West Africa. Emmanuel Akinwotu, NPR News, Ileife, Nigeria. Secretary of State Antony Blinken says the U.S. continues to call for Bazoum's release. Poland is accusing Belarus of waging a hybrid war using Russian Wagner mercenaries. Polish Prime Minister Mateusz Morawiecki says he's learned the Wagner fighters are close to the border. The BBC's Adam Easton has more. The Polish government has received information that around 100 mercenaries from the Wagner Group had moved to northwestern Belarus, close to the border with both Poland and Lithuania, Mr Morawiecki said. He added the mercenaries might pose as Belarusian border guards to help migrants cross into the EU, or pretend to be migrants themselves to enter the bloc. He gave no evidence for his claims. Poland and Lithuania accused Belarus of trying to destabilize the EU by facilitating the migrant flow, and both have erected fences along their borders with the country. The BBC's Adam Easton. In Alabama, voting rights advocates have filed formal objections to the new map of congressional voting districts that was recently passed by the state's Republican-controlled legislature. NPR's Hansi Lo Wong reports the court filing is part of a redistricting fight that could help determine which party controls the U.S. House after next year's elections. Last week, Alabama's Republican-led legislature passed a redistricting plan with one congressional district where black Alabamians old enough to vote make up the majority and another that is about 40 percent black. And now a group of black voters and other Alabama voting rights advocates are arguing that the plan does not follow a federal court order to get in line with the Voting Rights Act by drawing two districts where black voters have a realistic opportunity to elect their preferred candidate. A hearing is scheduled for mid-August. If a panel of three judges rejects the legislature's latest redistricting plan, experts appointed by the court to draw a map are expected to step in. NPR's Hansi Lo Wong. This is NPR. 
This is 90.9 WBUR. I'm Susan Levy in Boston. A severe thunderstorm watch is posted until 9 p.m. Scattered strong thunderstorms dumping drenching rain and packing strong winds are moving through. WBUR meteorologist Daniel Noyce reports drier air will soon return. Once the storms clear the coastline, the lower dew points come in. Temperatures drop back into the mid-60s tonight and tomorrow you'll feel the difference. Highs in the mid to upper 70s with a blend of sun and clouds. Storms earlier today flooded roads from Boston to Wellesley. In Newton, parts of Route 9 flooded. The National Weather Service reports the water was two feet deep on a street in Quincy. Thousands of delegates from across the country are gathered at the NAACP's National Convention being held in the Seaport District. Vice President Kamala Harris is about to make her appearance. Harris is the first woman, black person, and South Asian person elected to serve as vice president. The head of the civil rights group, Derek Johnson, says they're working for an inclusive society at a time when civil rights are under attack throughout the country. Local black business owners are making national connections inside the convention center. Pamela Griffin owns Chocolate Therapy in Framingham. I'm just glad to be included in Boston because when you're kind of in the suburbs, you're kind of out there. But I'm in Boston, so meeting a lot of folks in Boston and the whole national component, is it just adds a layer. It's, it's awesome. The head of a Boston networking group for black professionals says the convention is allowing her group to show all the work that's being done to create opportunities for this city's black residents. A woman from New Hampshire and her child have been kidnapped in Haiti. She works for the nonprofit relief group El Roy Haiti. The head of the organization tells WBUR the pair was taken from the group's campus near Port-au-Prince on Thursday. The organization says it's working with partners in Haiti to ensure the victim's safe return. The U.S. State Department ordered non-emergency government personnel and family members to leave Haiti because of the civil unrest. A severe thunderstorm watch is posted until 9 tonight. Of major concern is drenching rain and damaging winds by tomorrow, becoming mostly sunny with temperatures in the upper 70s as 80 degrees at 506. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by the Lodestar Foundation. Inspired by the principle that helping someone else less fortunate is a path to a happier, healthier, and more meaningful life. Learn more at lodestarfoundation.org. This is All Things Considered. From NPR News, I'm Scott Detrow. The list of charges against former President Donald Trump keeps growing. On Thursday, federal prosecutors in Florida added new felony charges against Trump and two of his employees at Mar-a-Lago. Trump and two others are now charged with seeking to delete key security footage at a moment when the investigation into Trump's alleged possession of classified documents grew more serious. My good friends at the NPR Politics Podcast talk through what it all means. Justice correspondent Kerry Johnson began the conversation with Susan Davis and Domenico Montanaro by pointing out that these latest charges happened at a moment when she and other reporters were waiting on an entirely different potential indictment of Trump. So while a bunch of us were sitting in the federal courthouse in D.C. waiting for something to happen with respect to the January 6th grand jury, instead the activity was happening in South Florida again. Donald Trump has now been charged with a total of 40 federal criminal offenses wow. in South Florida in connection with the hoarding, alleged hoarding of, of documents at his Mar-a-Lago resort. And there are two elements to this superseding indictment, two new uh, facets here. The first is that Trump has been charged with a Another count of willful retention of information related to the national defense. This seems to be about a military presentation 
regarding Iran that Trump was allegedly waving around to aides at Bedminster, his New Jersey golf club, that was mentioned in the earlier indictment. And the prosecution says they now have these papers. And the reason why this is important is because they also have an audio tape of someone at that meeting of Trump allegedly saying, you know, this is a secret. And uh, I could have declassified it when I was president, but I didn't. And so it's still a secret. And it could be powerful evidence of his state of mind, really. And Carrie, what is the other component to this? The other component is that there are new obstruction of justice charges here against uh, former President Trump, his valet Walt Nauta, and a third Mar-a-Lago employee, Carlos de Oliveira. The allegation here is that after the FBI and the Justice Department issued a subpoena for security footage of Mar-a-Lago, Trump, Nauta, and this third man, Carlos de Oliveira, cooked up a plot to try to delete the security footage to keep it out of the hands of the FBI. And there, there's some allegation about De Oliveira telling another Mar-a-Lago employee, the boss really wants this done. And this is hard stuff. This is hard stuff if it's true um, for a jury to hear in a, in a case that's so important about national security. And is it unusual in a case like this for having additional charges brought, especially in such a high-profile investigation? It's not super unusual. Prosecutors often will uh, sift through their evidence and, and realize uh, there there's a bit more here. We did know already that some additional Mar-a-Lago employees were under government scrutiny. Now a third person has been charged. It's not clear to me why this delay. We do know the prosecutors had said in open court that they were having a hard time getting into Walt Nauta's phone. Mm. And perhaps that was really one of the reasons for these additional charges now. Domenico, has there been any response from former President Trump? Well, you can imagine Trump's not happy. And he's, you know, again, blasting the Justice Department, blasting President Biden, blaming him for this, and blasting the special counsel, saying this is just another attempt to derail his presidential campaign. Of course, we're stuck in this situation where, you know, if he's running for president, he's saying, don't prosecute him. But if when he was president, uh, the Justice Department didn't want to prosecute him because of their protocols. So clearly, he's trying to use this as a shield, his run for president, to say, you really shouldn't be prosecuting me, and this is just all political. But speaking of political, Domenico, he is still the front runner for the Republican nomination, and we have new polling out from the NPR PBS NewsHour Marist poll. Yeah, it's actually brand new. Uh, we just got this in. We just got out of the field, and uh, it shows that Republicans are, you know, softening a little bit in their support uh, for Trump overall. But he's still the big player. You know, when we asked about uh, whether or not he's done anything wrong, or if he's done something illegal, or just something unethical, fifty-one uh, percent of people overall said that he, they believe, has done something illegal. Democrats have gone up six points uh, in thinking that since June. Not surprising there. But when you look on the Republican side, uh, you know, back in June, 50% said that he had done nothing wrong. Now it's down to 41%. You know, that's starting to get toward the outside portion of the margin of error. So that's a little bit of significant movement there. And when we asked about whether or not they want Trump to be the nominee, Last month, it was almost two-thirds who said that. 64% of Republicans said that they wanted Trump to be the nominee. I mean, he's down six points now to 58%. Now, could these numbers jump back up? Could they change based on how Trump spins some of this? Sure, but we may be seeing a little bit of a pile-on effect. You know, it, it is a fascinating dynamic because we continue to talk about the Republican primary and how he's still very strong among the base. But these are also an indication that if he were to be a general election nominee, you know, understatement, this is a tremendous amount of political baggage to be bringing into a national election. 
huge amount of baggage, and it's, none of it's popular with independents. It's really the swing group there. And I think we're going to have to watch the fact that you know Trump hasn't been able to get over 46% in a general election. Right now, it looks like he is really moving toward being the nominee, um, given that uh, Ron DeSantis, the Florida governor, his uh, operation has seemed to kind of take a nosedive in some respects, uh, laying off a bunch of uh, staffers and all of that. But, you know, when it comes to a general election, he's had a significantly difficult time, Trump, in getting above 46 percent. We're going to have to watch those third parties and see with all this disaffection if people decide to go to someone else. Carrie, this is significant news in the classified documents case, but this was not the indictment news we were expecting this week. We still are expecting to hear likely within days news about the January 6th investigation. Yeah, that's right. Lawyers for former President Trump appeared at the special counsel Jack Smith's office, presumably to try to convince them not to move forward with an indictment related to Trump's alleged efforts to overturn the 2020 election. Trump called that a productive meeting. We do not have a readout from the special counsel. The grand jury here in D.C. may be back next week, and I'll be here, too, watching and waiting. Domenico, I personally am very interested to see what the impact of a possible January 6th indictment is, because I think the potential allegations in that case for a lot of voters are in a completely different realm from what's happening in New York about covering up hush money payments to cover up an extramarital affair, even the classified documents, you know, there's a dispute over whether you could keep them or not. January 6th is about subverting an election. It's about, you know, trying to overturn an election, fraudulently trying to overturn an election. Voters might see that very differently than these other investigations. Yeah, you know, we've polled on this uh, previously because I was really interested to see if Trump being convicted would change anything with Republicans. And we really didn't see much change. You still had, you know, over 60 percent of Republicans saying that they wanted Trump to be the nominee um, if he was convicted of a crime. Now, this was a couple months ago when this was asked. But in reality, if he is actually convicted of something by a jury of his peers um, and there are still more pending charges and maybe convicted of something else, do these numbers really start to change and shift? He does have a significant you know, stronghold on a on a solid share of the Republican Party. But, you know, right now, the biggest problem in, in the Republican primary for any alternatives is no one seems to be emerging. Um, but, you know, I really tell people don't pay much attention when it comes to these horse race numbers in national polls, because these, you know, primaries are not decided nationally. They're decided in the early states. And we're starting to see a difference in the polling in places like Iowa and New Hampshire as compared to what we're seeing overall nationally. Trump's lead is much, much smaller in uh, the early states. That was NPR's Domenico Montanaro, Carrie Johnson, and Susan Davis. You can hear the NPR Politics Podcast every weekday afternoon. The popular Perseid meteor shower is underway, and it'll reach its peak in a couple of weeks. Skywatchers should be able to see bright streaks of light and even fireballs. NPR's Nell Greenfield-Boyce has these tips for how to catch the celestial fireworks. The Perseids happen every summer when the Earth plows through a cloud of debris associated with a comet. The bits of comet stuff are tiny. They can be like a grain of sand. But when they hit the atmosphere at high speeds... Friction causes that stuff to heat up and it causes the air around it to glow. Michelle Nichols is director of public observing with the Adler Planetarium in Chicago. She says this year the Perseids should put on a good show. Mainly because the moon isn't going to interfere. 
The moon will be just a sliver, so skies should be nice and dark when the shower reaches its peak on the night of August 12th and into the early morning hours of August 13th. But you don't have to wait for the peak. The Perseids and other minor showers are already sprinkling the sky with meteors. I was out this morning. I probably saw about five in two hours. Robert Lunsford works with the American Meteor Society. He says all you have to do is go outside, sit in a nice chair, get comfortable, look about halfway up the sky, and give your eyes at least 30 minutes to adapt to the darkness. Sometimes you'll see fireballs of, of different colors that leave a uh, trail in the sky for up to a minute or so, and uh, it's very cool. The chance of seeing fireballs is also a big draw for Jackie Faraday. She's an astronomer at New York City's Hayden Planetarium. One can come that will shake you to your core. It, like, scares you. She says the main thing you need to bring to a meteor shower is patience. You cannot just be out there for 10 minutes. You have to commit to being there. Because meteors don't come at a steady pace. Some hours will have hardly any, and then a whole slew will come. This is not about a quick, you know, awesome glance up and you see it and you're done. You have to dedicate. And really, 45 minutes to an hour is my recommended minimum. She says two hours is way better. Like, get a glass of wine or a bottle. Sit out there for a while. Give the sky a chance to entertain you. The Perseids will last until the end of August. The very best views will come in places away from city lights, assuming the skies are clear. If it's cloudy, just try another night. Nell Greenfield-Boyce, NPR News. Listening to All Things Considered from NPR News. This is 90.9 WBUR. I'm Susan Levy. A severe thunderstorm watch is posted until 9 p.m. Scattered strong thunderstorms dumping drenching rain and packing strong winds are moving through. A flash flood warning is issued for Middlesex and Essex counties until 6.15 tonight. Storms earlier today flooded roads from Boston to Wellesley and Newton parts of Route 9 flooded. WBUR occasionally offers you the opportunity to win prizes in conjunction with our fundraising efforts. While a pledge is appreciated and it is not required to win a prize, employees of WBUR and associated sweepstakes entities are not eligible for any drawings or contests. For complete rules, go to WBUR.org. 80 degrees at 518. We are funded by you, our listeners, and by Volante Farms, scooping Crescent Ridge ice cream and helping with the summer heat until 9 every night at the ice cream window. VolanteFarms.com for a list of outdoor concerts this summer. I'm Janine Herbst with these headlines. The European Union and France have cut off financial support to Niger, and the U.S. is threatening to follow suit after military leaders this week overthrew the democratically elected president, Mohamed Bazoum. Secretary of State Antony Blinken says the U.S. continues to call for Bazoum's release. Protesters are back in Lima, Peru, calling for the president's resignation and the dissolution of Congress. They're angry about widespread poverty in the country and inequality through some months of unrest earlier this year.
And Trader Joe's is recalling a broccoli cheddar soup that may contain insects and cooked falafel that may contain rocks. This about one week after the grocery chain recalled two cookie products over similar concerns. I'm Janine Herbst, NPR News. Support for NPR comes from this station and from Raymond James, a firm focused on transforming lives, businesses, and communities through tailored wealth management, banking, and capital market solutions. Learn more at RaymondJames.com. From Indeed, designed to be an end-to-end hiring solution for businesses of any size to attract, interview, and hire candidates all from one place. More at Indeed.com NPR. And from listeners like you, who donate to this NPR station. This is All Things Considered from NPR News. I'm Scott Detrow. Republicans have talked a lot about restricting drag performances in front of children this year, but that talk and most of those efforts haven't amounted to much. Anti-drag bills across the country have failed, been vetoes, been watered down, or temporarily blocked. Josie Lenora from member station KUAR in Little Rock looks at some of the reasons why. In Arkansas this year, a bill that would have banned drag performances in front of children was met with large public backlash. Republican State Senator Gary Stubblefield championed and sponsored the bill. Here he is back in January talking about how he thinks drag performance could harm children and take away their innocence. I can't think of any redeeming quality, anything good that can come from taking children and putting them in front of a bunch of grown men who are dressed like women. The bill Stubblefield sponsored would have banned performances in front of children that involved cross-dressing and that appeal to prurient interest. That term prurient shows up in a lot of states' bills on the subject. In committee, Stubblefield was asked by fellow lawmakers what the term means in a legal context. That word period interest means excessive interest in sexual matters. But critics feel the bill wouldn't hold up to basic legal scrutiny. Most drag shows do not appeal to the period interest. Even if they did, saying something appeals to the period interest under the First Amendment is not enough to regulate it. J.T. Morris is an attorney for the Foundation for Individual Rights and Expression, a pro-free speech group. Morris says drag bills are overly broad and could apply to many different kinds of performances. Well, you can't pass a state law based on your disagreement with somebody's viewpoint. That's a textbook First Amendment violation. And that could be one reason why, in at least 15 states, bills regulating drag performance died or were completely watered down on their way to becoming law. Three states did manage to pass restrictions. In Tennessee, a Trump-appointed U.S. District Judge Thomas Parker temporarily blocked that state's ban on drag performance in front of children due to the law's constitutional vagueness. In a ruling, Judge Parker says, whether some of us may like it or not, the First Amendment protects even indecent speech. A similar law in Florida is temporarily blocked. For a while, the only state with a drag ban in effect was Montana. A judge temporarily blocked that one, too, clearing the way for drag events just before the start of Montana Pride. Jeremy Stuthard, a drag performer in Arkansas, says to him, drag is about showmanship, not sex. I do drag as an art form. I take a decent-looking guy and turn him into a statuesque Barbie doll. 
and have a great time and put smiles on people's faces. And that's all I really try to do. He says most children he meets seem to have a good time at drag brunches and story hours. They listen and they enjoy and they have their little popcorn or their little candies or whatever they get during that time. And they just enjoy a story from an actor who happens to be in a costume. Ultimately, the law regulating drag in Arkansas was amended until it hardly resembled a drag ban. Now the law, which passed by large margins, basically regulates stripping, not drag shows. Senator Stubblefield didn't write the amendment, but he said he agreed to it after he spoke with Attorney General Tim Griffin. The amended House bill is the only way to really protect minors for another reason. It was the only draft that will stand up in court. There's none of us like to pass a bill that's going to get struck down by, by a judge and not help any children at all. In a statement, the Attorney General of Arkansas says he routinely works closely with legislators to make sure bills are consistent with the U.S. and Arkansas constitutions. He says the final version of this law does protect children. For NPR News, I'm Josie Lenora in Little Rock. What really happened in Syria on the night of October 26, 2019? The U.S. military tells one version, a daring and successful U.S. raid against the founder of ISIS, Abu Bakr al-Baghdadi. The U.S. says its troops killed no civilians in that raid. This raid was impeccable. Then-President Donald Trump praised the operation, as did Chairman of the Joint Chiefs of Staff Mark Milley. Our forces isolated the compound and protected all the non-combatants. Syrians tell another story about that night, that U.S. airstrikes actually did kill and maim civilians. NPR reported on those claims back in 2019. The Pentagon reviewed the claims and rejected them. So we sued the Pentagon for a copy of its confidential review. NPR's Daniel Estrin reports that there are flaws in the Pentagon's conclusions. And a warning, this report includes some graphic details. It was nighttime, and Barakat Ahmad Barakat says his two friends were giving him a ride home after work at an olive oil press. There was nothing suspicious at all. We kept moving normally. There was nothing ahead of us on the road. Suddenly, I felt something hit us. Airstrikes targeted their van. As it turned out, they were approaching the hideout of ISIS founder Abu Bakr al-Baghdadi, just as U.S. forces were raiding it. My friend was wounded all over his body and fell over onto the dashboard. Do a Google image search of Baghdadi and car, and you'll see photos of their mangled van seen around the world. There's footage of uh, a white van that was riddled with bullets that was right next to the scene. A journalist asked about this in a press conference after the raid. Here's what General Kenneth McKenzie, who oversaw the operation, said. So the white van that you talk about was one of the vehicles that displayed hostile intent, came to us, and it was destroyed. The men fled the van. Barakat says he carried his wounded friend across his chest and reached the side of the road when they were targeted with more airstrikes. I was so terrified that I didn't understand what exactly was striking us or what was happening. That's Barakat speaking this month at the very spot where this happened in 2019. AFP's Omar Haj Qadur filmed him for NPR. In the airstrikes, Barakat's two friends were killed and his right hand was blown off. Cell phone video that surfaced after the attack shows a destroyed van, two pockmarked bodies, and a severed hand. NPR learned about this account at the time of the raid and brought these claims to the Pentagon that Syrian civilians were targeted in U.S. airstrikes. The Pentagon launched a confidential review of the incident and told us the airstrikes were necessary. It said the men were enemy combatants who threatened forces because they didn't stop their car when troops fired warning shots. 
But Barakat told us he didn't recall any warning shots. I didn't know what was going on. I was just trying to escape death. NPR sued the Pentagon to release its confidential review under the Freedom of Information Act, and the Pentagon released a redacted copy. We showed it to experts, including Larry Lewis from the federally funded Center for Naval Analyses. He's advised the military on how to reduce civilian casualties, and he thinks the military got it wrong here. When I read it, and this is based on reading literally thousands of these cases, it seems very familiar. There are civilians going about their daily lives, and then they suddenly encounter a military force unexpectedly. The report redacts what kind of aircraft carried out the airstrikes, but military officials have said attack helicopters were used in the operation. Here's the timeline, according to the Pentagon report. First, there were combatants who opened fire on U.S. troops, and the troops fired back. Then Barakat's van passed through that spot and drove in the direction of ground troops further down the road. The report says a U.S. aircraft fired warning shots about 50 feet in front of the van, but the van kept going, so the aircraft targeted it directly. This is the core of the Pentagon's claim. The van demonstrated hostile intent because it didn't stop or alter course following warning shots. But NPR's investigation found there was hardly any time to respond between the warning shots and the airstrike on the van. Here's how we reached that conclusion. The aerial photos in the report show that the aircraft struck the van in the same place it fired the warning shots. Looking at the photos, the van had only traveled about 50 feet, or maybe as much as 70. Barakat says they were going slowly. So say as an estimate, the van was traveling just 15 miles an hour. They only had two or three seconds before the van was hit. Lewis says all this would have been a blur to someone driving in the dark. Tragically, what happens too often is that the military does not effectively communicate what it really wants. They want the van to stop. But what do they use? They use lethal force. So you get this escalation based on misunderstandings. Here's another claim. The military report says after the airstrikes hit the van, the pilot thought there were explosions from the van, which could mean it was carrying explosives or weapons, and the pilot fired a rocket at the men as they fled. But the report says looking back, the Pentagon could not confirm what caused the explosions. There's no record the Pentagon contacted the airstrike survivor. Barakat says they never did. Larry Lewis again. Military forces see a vehicle or an individual, they believe it is hostile, it's a threat, but they're mistaken that it's actually civilian. And we, we call that misidentification. That's how I would characterize what, what is happening here. One of the Pentagon documents says something curious. It says, given the high visibility of this strike and allegation, it recommends the military provide a top secret document that, quote, further addresses the characterization of the individuals killed and injured as unlawful enemy belligerents, if the existing intelligence so supports. I asked Lewis, what does the author mean by this? It does indicate kind of this question in the person that was writing this, like, you know, why are we so insistent that these people that we use force on, what is the real evidence that they were in fact combatants? that they weren't civilians that were caught in, in the wrong place at the wrong time. We asked the Pentagon. It said there is no record officials ever compiled any top-secret document. 
so the Pentagon didn't provide the intelligence to support its own conclusion. We showed the Pentagon report to former Defense Department Special Counsel Ryan Goodman. There are several red flags that raise concerns. The analysis in these documents conflates or muddles an assessment of the decision-making at the time under the fog of war versus the post-strike analysis that they may have gotten it wrong. In other words, it's one thing to say that troops acted reasonably in the heat of the moment. They saw a van approaching, decided in a matter of seconds that it was hostile, and fired on it. But it's another thing for the Pentagon to look at this months later and still rely on the initial judgment troops made during the fog of war. One, that there were combatants in the area, even though the van did not open fire. And two, that the van ignored the Army's warning shots, even though we know those shots provided the van little time to react. In response to NPR's findings, U.S. Central Command spokesman Major John Moore said there was no formal investigation into the incident because the Pentagon found the allegations that U.S. troops killed civilians to be not credible, and it had no plans to reassess the allegations and, quote, nothing additional to offer. I brought all this to Barakat, whose hand was blown off in the strike. He's had surgery to remove shrapnel from his other hand. He says he can hold things again. But he cannot afford his $8 physical therapy sessions, and can't find work to provide enough food for his five young children. He's 39 now. He wants compensation. My future is destroyed. I have a family, kids. How is this their fault? Last year, the Defense Department introduced a new action plan to mitigate civilian casualties. And a U.S.-based nonprofit has taken up Barakat's case, the Zomia Center, which advocates for civilian victims of military strikes. Joanna Naples-Mitchell directs the group's redress program and wants the Defense Department to take a fresh look at this case. She's collected documentation showing what Barakat was doing in the area, receipts from his work at a nearby olive oil press. The big takeaway from this is that two men are dead, Barakat is severely disabled, the military owes him a lot more, they owe him a real explanation for what happened to him because the military has not even taken basic steps to check their own assumptions from that night. She's requesting Barakat's case be reopened. And last month, after NPR inquired with the Pentagon, she says the Pentagon told her it's looking into the request. So the official U.S. narrative about civilian casualties in the raid against the head of ISIS may not be case closed. Daniel Estrin, NPR News. In an update on this story, since Daniel's reporting on the declassified documents broke last week, several members of Congress have called for accountability in this case. That includes Congresswoman Sarah Jacobs, a Democrat who sits on the House Armed Services Committee. She's calling for the Pentagon to, quote, reopen this investigation immediately and make amends if necessary. You're listening to All Things Considered from NPR News. Take a moment and think about the last thing you cooked. How much do you think the carrot in that recipe cost? And what about those three cups of vegetable broth? Beth Monsell could actually answer that question. She's the founder of BudgetBites.com, a recipe website for folks with small budgets. 
When she studied nutritional science at college, she learned a costing method that restaurants and cafeterias use. And you can use it at home, too. I suggest everyone try costing at least once because it's so eye-opening. It really does make you rethink the way you look at all of the ingredients that you're buying. Marielle Seguera, the host of NPR's Life Kit, talked to Monsell recently, and she is going to share some more about that technique, along with other tips for how to spend less on groceries. This technique, costing, means calculating the per-service cost of a recipe. So let's say you were making lentil bolognese. That's a recipe on Monsell's website. One ingredient is a carrot. You'd figure out the price of that carrot, add it to the cost of all the other ingredients in the recipe, and then... Divide it by the number of servings so you know how much each of your meals is is costing. The lentil bolognese costs $1.40 per serving. Mansell says when you do this, you start to notice patterns. Like some of the components are way cheaper than others. One carrot is 15 cents. One cup of red lentils, 67 cents. Half a cup of walnuts, a dollar and seven cents. Mansell says once you know these things, you can tweak the ratios in your recipes to make them cheaper. Like if she's making chili with ground beef. So something that I like to do is reduce that ground beef by half. So I'm still getting that beefy flavor and that satisfying mouthfeel of, you know, actually eating beef. But then I bulk up the recipe with extra beans, maybe some lentils or maybe even some extra vegetables if I have them. Some other foods that tend to be cheap and substantive. My favorite is cabbage. (laughs) Cabbage is so versatile because it can go with so many different flavors and there's a lot of different ways you can prepare it. And it's so filling. Um, Don't forget about potatoes, onions, carrots, even broccoli sometimes can be pretty inexpensive. On the flip side, ingredients that tend to be more expensive are meat, cheese, other dairy products, and nuts. Another way to lower your monthly grocery bill is to make sure you're not wasting food. Monsell relies heavily on her freezer. I often freeze leftover cheese. Um, leftover bread products freeze really well. If you can't freeze a leftover ingredient, try incorporating it into your menu for the next few days. Now, if you're one of those people who puts stuff in the freezer and then forgets that it's in there. One way to stay on top of that is you can actually keep a list magnetized to the front of your freezer. And every time you put like a leftover ingredient in the freezer, you know, just write it down, write the date on it. And then if you use it, cross it off your list. In terms of the actual grocery shopping, Monsell looks at circulars online before she heads to the store. She does that while she's making a meal plan so she can work in ingredients that are on sale. She says, keep in mind, it's not always cheaper to buy in bulk. Also, think about whether you'll use that huge bag of flour before it goes bad. Lastly, if you're having a hard time paying for groceries, she suggests that you look up food banks in your area. I think it's a a really great resource that is often overlooked, or people think food banks are for people who only have no food, but really it's like a, a bridge to help people through these tough times. Maybe you just need a couple things to get you to your next paycheck. For NPR News, I'm Marielle Segarra. This is NPR News. 
This is 90.9 WBUR, and so glad you're with us on this stormy Saturday. I'm Susan Levy. A flash flood warning is issued for Boston, Cambridge, and Quincy until 6.45 tonight. A severe thunderstorm watch is posted until 9. Strong thunder showers today have been dropping drenching rain and bringing strong winds. Storms earlier today flooded roads from Boston to Wellesley in Newton. Parts of Route 9 flooded. I'm Scott Simon. Are you thinking about trading in your car? Why not donate it to this station instead? We'll turn it into the programs you love. Just go to WBUR.org. It's 75 degrees at 539, coming up at 6, the Moth Radio Hour, and it runs until 8. Thanks for listening, and stay with WBUR for the latest weather developments. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by DEC, using the power of visuals, presence, and storytelling to help speakers connect with audiences. More at presentationsbydeck.com. I'm Janine Herbst with these headlines. Voting rights advocates in Alabama have filed formal objections to the new map of congressional voting districts that was recently passed by the state's Republican-controlled legislature. It's part of a redistricting fight that could help determine which party controls the U.S. House after next year's elections. In Greece, temperatures have eased a bit and the wildfire on the island of Rhodes is contained. The fires across the country, fueled by heat waves, left at least five people dead. And Katie Ledecky has passed Michael Phelps for the most individual gold medals at the World Championships. The 26-year-old freestyler won the 800-meter freestyle in Japan today to become the first swimmer to win six goals in the same event at the Worlds. I'm Janine Herbst, NPR News. Support for NPR comes from this station and from Made in Cookware. Made in Cookware is crafted by chefs for chefs and designed for restaurants and home kitchens around the world. Their cookware can be found at madeincookware.com. From the Wallace Foundation, working to develop and share practices that can improve learning and enrichment for young people and the vitality of the arts for everyone. Ideas and information at wallacefoundation.org. And from listeners like you who donate to this NPR station. This is All Things Considered from NPR News. I'm Scott Detrow. The new documentary, The Deepest Breath, introduces viewers to the world of free diving. Alessia Zacchini, Italy, four minutes, world record attempt. The film follows Italian free diver Alessia Zacchini as she attempts to break record after record. Each time she dives deep down into the depths of the ocean after taking one single breath. You heard her breathe in just a moment ago, and we are playing the sound of that dive, which happens early in the movie, underneath this entire introduction. Divers like Zacchini don't use oxygen equipment. Deep under the water, they only rely on a rope and a safety team close to the surface waiting to help the diver if something goes wrong. What would you like to accomplish in the next few months? I would like to go deeper. I would like to do the world record. That world record was 101 meters under the surface. As she tries to go deeper, Zakini meets Irish safety diver Stephen Keenan. And from the moment the documentary begins, it makes it clear that death is always lurking around the corner in this sport. 
and it's clear early on that at some point, something will go wrong for either Zucchini or Keenan. The director, Laura McGann, says she relied mostly on archival footage from both divers to tell their story. I thought in order to stay in the moment with Stephen and Alessia, go on their journey with them, I need to treat them both in the same way. So it all depended on all of that archive existing to be able to tell the story the way we did, which was, you know, it was chronological. You don't know anything that the people on the screen don't know. And by the way, yes, that first dive scene is still playing. Zucchini is still holding her breath and diving. I talked to McGann earlier this week, and she said she was an outsider at first. She started learning about the sport when she Googled it. I was met by these images of, like, human beings behaving more like seals and dolphins in the sea, seemingly without the urge to breathe. And it was just like nothing I'd ever seen before. And it very much was one of those cases where on that evening, I got so engrossed in it that hours passed and I looked up and it was dark, you know, like where you just don't notice anything else. It was like finding out that there was a group of people somewhere in the world um, that could fly and they had been flying, you know, for a number of years and here's a whole lot of videos of them doing it. That's kind of what day one was like for me on this project. But at the same time, it's incredibly dangerous. And from the first five minutes of this film, you are making it clear to everybody watching that death is always lurking and the smallest mistake can kill you. You also spend a lot of time with both Stephen and, and Alessia's fathers, talking to them, you know, at, at some points watching dive attempts with them. What did you learn about the toll that free diving can take on the families of the people who do it? Yeah, it's that was my ultimate question going to both Peter and Enzo, Alessia and Stephen's parents, um, fathers was to try and figure, more so than why do the freedivers do it, but how do the parents live with it? And in their different ways, both are learning or have learned how to live with it. Peter said, like, he was always expecting the call. He knew that someday the phone would probably ring and it wouldn't be good news. Whereas Enzo... I think Alessia maybe doesn't really tell him uh, exactly what her plans are before she does them to protect him. And he would probably, you know, he has said that um, he would prefer if she would hang up her boots and try something else. But he also respects that this is this is who she is. I want to talk for a few moments about how you put this film together, because I think we were everyone who watched this uh, at NPR for this segment was just struck by how stunning the visuals were and how and how comprehensive the visuals were. And and I just assumed that you had been actively working on this film at the time and that you were there shooting every single moment. But that that wasn't actually the case. How did you gather all of this amazing footage uh, going back in back in time to tell this story? we knew what the story was going to be and we said, right, what exists? And we were really committed to telling the best version of this story. And we knew that it had been really well documented, like as a sport. And we knew over the years we were getting dribs and drabs and we thought it's possible that we could do this. I think the fact that it was COVID, may, you know, lockdown and things may have helped because people were at home. So when we would get in touch with 
you know, for example, there was one scene where we only had one photo and we said, is that person in the background? Are they holding a camera? And then we'd ask such and such and they'd say, oh, yeah, that's Stefano. He actually did have a camera around a good bit. So we get, we were like, right, where's Stefano? Get in touch with Stefano. It's like detective work. Total. It was like pulling little threads, hundreds of them. And Stefano would be at home usually because a lot of the people in this film, like they're hopping around the world and it's hard to pin them down. But because everyone was at home and they, you know, maybe had a bit of time on their hands, they had they went up into the attic. They went through the old hard drive and they found the stuff and they they sent it to us. What did you learn about this? Because it, it feels like even more than a subculture. You know, this is this is just a global community. Everyone clearly knows each other very well. They all do this extreme thing together. That creates a, a very specific kind of bonding that you can't replicate in, in much other circumstances. You found yourself in this world for several years doing this project. What did you learn about it? A lot, an awful lot. Um, I'll give you two answers, right? One is the physiological things that happen in your body when you dive, right? There's one thing that really stood out to me, and it's a reflex called the mammalian dive reflex. It's when you go, when you dive deep, your heart rate lowers and your blood shunts to your organs, to your major organs, protecting them and also conserving oxygen. And that's something that's also seen in seals and dolphins, other like other mammals. It's less so in humans, but it is there. You know, it's only when you put yourself in a position that you discover what you're capable of. And this is something that freedivers discovered they were capable of. And I just think it's fascinating. Um, the second thing is a more of a personal thing where with safety divers and freedivers, the athlete puts their life in the safety divers' hands. They're saying, if anything happens to me, you're going to bring me back up to air, to life, to my family, to the sand. And the safety diver is saying, that's what I'm going to do. And the person goes and does their dive and they come back up and maybe they need assistance or maybe they don't. But the act of taking that risk with that person, it's like the ultimate trust exercise. And I think that's what you see in the community because people are doing safety for each other, you know, swapping over and being each other's buddy. And it, it does create a certain kind of utopian uh, kind of vibe. Yeah, it's super, it's super nice. That was Laura McGann, director of the documentary The Deepest Breath, which is out now on Netflix. The world lost Sinead O'Connor this week. The Grammy-winning singer and songwriter was a powerful musician, also an activist known for pushing the envelope. Her most controversial public moment came in 1992. In a live performance on Saturday Night Live, O'Connor closed her set by tearing up a photo of Pope John Paul II. It was a protest, she said, against the Catholic Church's silence on child sex abuse. Fight the real enemy. O'Connor's fraught relationship with the church started early on, tracing back to her Catholic upbringing in Ireland. Here she is in RTE One's The Late Late Show. I grew up in a very different Ireland to the one that exists now, and it was a very oppressed country, religiously speaking. And everybody was miserable. Nobody was getting any joy in God. O'Connor's difficult and sometimes tumultuous spiritual journey often played out in public, but fewer people know where that journey ultimately led her. In 2018, O'Connor announced that she was, quote, 
reverting to Islam. The word revert, it, it refers to the idea that if you were to study the Quran, you would realize that you had all you were a Muslim all your life and you didn't realize it. It's just and waiting to happen to you. That's what happened to me. Sheikh Umar al-Qadri is the chief imam at the Islamic Center of Ireland. He was also a friend and a spiritual advisor of O'Connor's. Welcome to All Things Considered. Uh, I'm, I'm glad to be talking to you, but I'm, I'm sorry to be talking to you under these circumstances. Thank you for inviting me to speak on this very, you know, sad and tragic event. Uh, Sinead was a very good friend, um, our sister in faith, and of course in humanity. And you knew Sinead O'Connor from, from her earliest days as a Muslim, and you actually played a part in her conversion. Uh, can you tell us what some of those early conversations were like? Sister Shuhada Sinead uh, contacted the Islamic Center, and we met for approximately two to three hours. Uh, it was very clear to me that this was the lady who had already done her research and her questions about Islam were not the basic usual questions people have. They were actually theological questions. They were questions related to specific verses of the Quran. And um, in the first meeting, I had absolutely no idea who she was. And she'd asked me to Google her up because I was surprised at her comment at the end of our meeting that please do not mention anybody in the media about me. <laughs> and uh, to my surprise, the lady I'd spoken to, who was very humble, down to earth, was in fact, uh, you know, a world renowned musician, artist. Uh, so we met for the second time and we had a long discussion again. She then on the same day, she said the Shahada, the proclamation of faith, uh, which is uh, how a person becomes Muslim, and then she became a Muslim woman. Yeah. So, so, so clearly, in those early conversations, and 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 I should mention, you referred to her as Sister Shuhada. She she adopted the name after she converted. She had clearly been seeking um, a different spiritual path. What was it about Islam that attracted her? Um, I think uh, one of the things that she loved about Islam was the fact that you can communicate with God directly. So there is no concept of uh, someone in between you and God. It was just you directly communicating with God. She loved also the fact that as a Muslim, we believe in the Torah, we believe in the Bible, we believe in Prophet Jesus, we believe in Moses. And for her, she said that for me, it makes sense. Islam is the faith, is the religion. Once she embraced and accepted Islam, I knew by engaging with her, and obviously uh, people that know her, they know that she had always longed for peace. And I think with Islam, she did get that peace. We could see after having accepted Islam, her appearances on the media, where she again returned back to singing. And we had a discussion about that. She asked me, uh, well, Sheikh, I heard different stories. I hear uh, that some people say that you cannot really sing, at this, you can't sing. What does the Quran say? What does the tradition say? And I explained to her that, you know, your voice, this is an amazing talent God has given you. Yeah. And this is a talent that you, you, you communicate with that powerful talent that you have, that beautiful voice of yours. And you could express things that, you know, maybe people otherwise would not really, you know, understand. Yeah, and that leads to a moment I wanted to to listen to with you and talk to you about. Um, this is from 2018, shortly after she had formally converted to Islam, and she's reciting the Islamic call to prayer. You were there for that moment. What did it mean for her? For her, it meant, it meant uh, a lot. She asked me whether she could say the Azan in the Islamic Center, and she knew 
that the azan is usually said by men. And I, I said, why would I stop you? Because I know how much this means for you. And she said the azan and everybody present during that uh, event became very emotional because the person that was reciting it, the person that was singing it in that amazingly heavenly voice, it was amazing. And it sounds like hearing it in this moment, I could hear I could hear that, that there's still a lot of emotion for you, especially hearing it this week under these circumstances. Yes, absolutely. Uh, I know that she is a wonderful person with a blessed soul. And she was one that was very vocal for uh, certain things that were important to her. Equality was important to her. Humanity was important for her. And these are the things that she uh, had expressed throughout her life uh, with, with music and arts. Um, and uh, a couple of days ago, when she passed away, a friend of mine in Ireland contacted me and informed me about her demise, her death. And I just could not get over it. I mean, I could not believe it. Mm -hmm. I want to ask you how you feel about this. There's been a lot of online commentary about the fact that in the coverage of Sinead O'Connor's death, the fact that she converted to Islam in recent years was either minimized or not mentioned at all. Is that something that bothered you? Uh, it, to be honest, it did. And the reason for that is because, you know, we live in a time when people want to be addressed by certain pronouns. We do that. We make sure that we uh, address them as they want. And when it comes to Sister Shuhada Sinead, I have seen that um, she had embraced Islam. She had accepted the identity. She had changed her name. Uh, and if one wants to honor her, let's honor her comprehensively, her personality comprehensively. And uh, she was a proud Irish woman, but also she was a proud Irish Muslim woman. And I think that should be uh, acknowledged. I understand that when she was initially exploring Islam and thinking about it, she kept it private. But, but once she converted, she was very open about it, very proud about that. And I'm wondering what the response was from the, the broader Muslim community in Ireland to, to, to that conversion and, and to her really wanting to share it with the world. Um, the Muslim community in Ireland, uh, in fact, globally, was very pleased, very happy, especially because this is an artist, a musician that many Muslims around the world actually adored and loved, and they used to listen to their music, her music. And so people around the world, uh, Muslims, were very happy, very uh, overwhelmed. And, um, and even now, once you know she's passed away, people are very you know, heartbroken, they are sad. They've lost their, their 